Thanks, Chris. Our Bible reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 13, and we're reading verses 1 to 23. can be found on page 1520 of the Bibles on your chairs, or you can follow on the screen behind me. Matthew 13, 1 to 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such loud crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A father went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they were withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart had become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, Understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For for truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Thank you, Simon. Good morning, everyone. 
It's great to have you here. My name's Carl, if we haven't met before. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Only. It's lovely to be with you this morning. Thanks for being here with us on a long weekend morning and for taking the time to think through who this man Jesus is. But I wonder, I wonder what the last thing you learnt was. What was the last thing you learnt, the last skill you learnt? My little boy Hamish, who many of you have met, is currently learning how to ride a balance bike. If you haven't seen one of those before, this is a balance bike. It's essentially a small bike with no pedals. It's kind of what the modern equivalent of putting training wheels on a bike is because as a child you learn to ride the bike by using your feet essentially as the training wheels and after learning how to glide on that, they they say it's much easier for you to ride a normal bike with pedals. What's the last thing you learnt, the last skill you learnt, and how did you go about learning it? What was the process involved in you learning and understanding something? How did you gain that knowledge? It's a question I'd like you to be thinking about this morning. How do you learn and how do you understand? Today we're uh, at the end of our little series looking into the middle chapters of the book of Matthew. I hope you've enjoyed the last six weeks as we've asked the question time and time and time again, who is this man, Jesus? Today we finish up with this story of the disciples, um, Jesus wanting them to respond to him. The question's been asked time and time again, who is this man? And today Jesus is really asking the disciples and the crowds, I think, to respond to him. That's a great thing for us to be thinking about through today as well at the end of this series. See, over the last six weeks, we've been looking into what Jesus is like. You might be wondering why so many people failed to respond to him. I mean, Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. We've seen that time and time again over the last few weeks. And yet many of those who see the miracles of Jesus, they fail to recognize who he is. Why is that, do you think? Today we're going to try and get an answer to that question. I think that's what chapter 13 is all about. But before we dig into chapter 13 together, because it's the last week in our series, I want us to hit the rewind button, so to speak, and just go back over our journey through Matthew over the last few weeks. Next week we're leaving Matthew, we're going in to look at 1 Samuel, we'll be there in the lead up to Easter, looking at God's kingship Uh, and asking some questions about kingship and who God's real king is. So this is our last time in Matthew for a good few months. I'd like to take you back where we've been so far. Throughout this whole series, we've been asking this question, haven't we? I hope you know that question really well now. Who is this man, Jesus? What kind of a man is he? So in broad brushstrokes in chapters 8 and 9, we learnt about the authority of Jesus. What kind of a man is he? Well, we saw he's a man of great authority. Authority to teach, authority to heal sickness, authority over nature. Remember, with a word, he calmed a raging storm. Remember that? The carpenter, surrounded by seasoned fishermen in a raging storm, and the seasoned fishermen cry out to him and cry out to a carpenter for help. And with a word, he calms the raging storm. The wind and the waves obey this man. But perhaps most impressively, we saw that this man, Jesus, has authority to forgive sins. 
the religious leaders, they thought that was blasphemous, didn't they? Because who else can forgive sins but God, they said. What kind of a man is this? Oh, he's God in the flesh, isn't he? He and the Father are one. And then in chapter 11, Matthew tells us of John the Baptist's followers who came to Jesus asking, are you really the one we're hoping for? And Jesus answers, quoting those words from Isaiah 35 and 61. I've read them many times. I want to remind you of them again this week. This is what Jesus says to John's disciples. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus' own answer to the question of what kind of a man is this? He's saying, isn't he, with absolute clarity, I am the promised Messiah. And as we read... This story today about a sower, having seen the authority of Jesus over the past few chapters, you'd expect, wouldn't you, that Jesus would have been universally praised. I mean, who else in history has emptied all the sick people from hospitals? Who else has calmed a storm with just a word? Who else has brought back a person from the dead, raised them to life? And yet Jesus isn't universally praised, is he? Despite these miraculous signs, despite the healing of all of these sick people, he's not universally praised, he's not even universally accepted. Sure, some choose to follow him. Matthew, our author of this gospel, he's a great example of this, isn't he? He was a tax collector, we saw that. Matthew's own words, despised by the regular Jewish society, he left everything and he followed Jesus. But as we've been reading through these chapters, not everybody responds in that way, do they? Whole towns like Bethsaida and Capernaum and Chorazin, they fail to see Jesus for who he really is. And it looks like the religious leaders in particular, it looks like they're really in opposition to this person, Jesus, aren't they? I think that opposition is seen most clearly amongst that group, the Pharisees. So Matthew tells us in chapter 12 that after seeing Jesus heal a withered person's hand on the Sabbath, the Pharisees went out and they plotted how they might kill Jesus. He just healed a sick person, raised the dead, and the Pharisees are plotting how they might kill him. He's the Lord of the universe. And what are the Pharisees doing? Plotting how they might kill him. Have you ever wondered how this could be? Why do people respond this way? Well, how is it that some, like Matthew, respond to Jesus and others just simply ignore him or choose to oppose him outright? I think chapter 13 sets out to kind of answer that question. There are a number of parables in this chapter. Today we've just read the parable of the sower, but there's also the parable of the weeds and the mustard seed and the yeast and the buried treasure and the pearl and the net. I've called the title of today's sermon, The Great Storyteller, because surely we need to add to Jesus' abilities, raising the dead, healing the sick. He's also the great storyteller, isn't he? And these stories are linked because they all speak, I think, 
in one sense, about a, a response to the proclamation of God's kingdom. They show us, as readers, how we should respond to this man, Jesus, and the kingdom that he is ushering in. I wanted to finish our little series looking at Matthew here in chapter 13 today because I really want to raise this question with you. How will you respond to what you've heard about Jesus over the last couple of months? See, we've looked at this authorised authorized biography of Jesus. We've seen how magnificent this man is. Having formed a view of what he was able to do and is able to do and the way that he works... How will you respond? If you haven't already done so, I'd love you to go back over these chapters in Matthew and revisit the evidence. Ask yourself again, who is this man? And don't just let the words wash over you then. I'd love you to think about how you might respond to this man, Jesus. You might remember last week in chapter 12, we saw how the city of Nineveh responded to Jonah's preaching. And how the Queen of Sheba responded to the wisdom of Solomon. What they saw, what they experienced, caused a response from them. A change in heart, a change in attitude. Matthew is encouraging us as readers in chapter 13. Respond to Jesus. How will you do that today? What do you need to do to respond to Jesus? We're only going to look at one of the parables today in chapter 13. There are others, as I've said. We're only looking at the parable of the sower today. And you'll find that on page 1,520 of your Bibles. I'm just going to read to you, starting from verse 3. If you could follow along with me in your Bibles, that would be great. Matthew chapter 13, verse 3. He then told them many things in parables saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty or thirty times what was sown. Seems to me that in Jesus' day and in a more rural environment, the sowing of seed would have probably been a bit more of a common practice than it is for us today. But even for us today in our modern urban environment, The story is a relatable one, isn't it? We kind of get the idea of what the story is about. The farmer sows seed, it falls on a variety of different types of soil, and the outcome of that seed, well, it depends on the soil, doesn't it? And the focus of the parable is not so much on the sower, but on the soil, isn't it? It's called the parable of the sower, it's actually really about the different types of soil. There's four of them, I wonder if you noticed them as... I read to them, or as Simon read it earlier on. There's a soil of the path that's compacted and hard and the seed lies on top of it and so birds come along and eat that seed. Or there's the rocky soil, that soil that's without adequate depth. That's the soil that reminds me of our front yard at the moment. 
it's full of builder's rubble. There's old gravel and old paint and all sorts of stuff in that soil. A seed may grow there for a week or two, but ultimately it won't last. And then there's a soil that's filled with weeds and thorns. That reminds me, funnily enough, of our backyard at the moment, where nothing will grow because there's so much weeds and so much thistles, they choke out any other plant that might be there. And finally, there's the good soil. You notice what makes it good? It's good because it's fruitful. I wonder what you make of this parable. I'm sure that many of you will have heard it before. Perhaps you even understand the words. And given that I've told you already that the theme of this chapter is about our response, perhaps you've already moved on in a way to try and interpret the parable in your mind. But before we rush on to that, I want to remind you that this parable is interpreted by Jesus. It's one of the few that is interpreted by him. But I want you also to note what he says in verse 9. He says this, whoever has ears, let them hear. Whoever has ears, let them hear. See, here in verse 9, Jesus is urging his listeners to consider the story. I think it's what we call, or what commentators call, exhortation. But at the same time, it's also a warning. Don't let these words just wash over you without thinking about them. In verse 10, the disciples come to Jesus with a question, and it's a question I've been working on all week. It's a tricky question. The more we dig into it, the more difficult I think it is. And it's a question that Jesus answers, but it's an answer that only the disciples hear, not the whole crowd. Let me read this question to you. Disciples come to Jesus and they ask, why do you speak to the people in parables? Why do you speak to the people in parables? And indeed, except for a brief period in chapter 23, from now until the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus will only speak to the crowds in parables, in no other way. He speaks to his disciples differently, but to the crowds, except for a brief bit in chapter 23, only in parables. Why do you speak to the people in parables? And this is how Jesus answers that question. I'll read it to you from verse 11. He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Does this answer make sense, or are you a little bit confused at this point? But I was pretty confused by this answer as I read it this week. And you see, the more I looked into this, the less certain I was, I think, of what it meant. Do parables make it easier or harder for people to find the truth? That's the question that I was grappling with in the week. Do parables make it easier or harder for people to learn the truth? Very grateful today for Leon Morris and his commentary on Matthew. Why does Jesus speak in parables? This is what Leon 
Morris says, the quote's on the screen. Jesus uses the method of parables in order to convey his teaching vividly and to stimulate his hearers to think with the result that those who apply themselves learn to their profit, whereas those who do not never find the truths Jesus is teaching. Or to put it simply, Jesus taught in parables to both reveal the truth and to conceal the truth. I'm going to try and explain how that works. Let me, let me show you something. We've had a day of props already, but I'm going to get another prop out for you, and it's a really big one. Just give me a minute or two to get this out. Can you see it? hope so. Oh, it has another bit. This is the bit that goes with it. Now, this is my stand-up paddleboard. You need to use this to go with it. There's nothing that I like doing more on a summer holiday than going stand-up paddleboarding. I don't know if you've ever done it. It's actually not an overly difficult form of surfing to uh, try. They describe it kind of as surfing for those in the Middle Ages or middle-aged people. Let me tell you how you, st- how you surf on a stand-up paddleboard. You put your feet somewhere just behind the middle of the board. You hold the paddle in your hands like this, actually like this. Uh, you point the blade backwards like that. It's kind of counterintuitive, but that's how you do it. Uh, And when it gets a bit wobbly, because you can imagine it's a bit wobbly, they say, thrust your paddle into the water, and that's kind of your third point. That's kind of like your tripod bit. So thrust it into the water and use that as kind of your balance point. That's about as much instruction as you get on how to learn how to stand up paddleboard. Now, I love doing it, but I particularly love doing it in the surf. I think there's nothing better than going out and catching waves on a stand up paddleboard. Now, I could tell you a lot more about how to do it, I built this stand-up paddleboard, so I could tell you a little bit about what goes into making a paddleboard. I could tell you kind of a little bit about how you actually catch a wave, like you paddle as fast as you can, you move forward on the board a little bit, when you feel the wave picking you up, you make sure that you thrust your paddle into the water and try and push yourself down the front of the wave, and you've got to run back a little bit to balance the board. You've got to watch out for swimmers in front of you and make sure you don't run one of them over. That's kind of about how you do it. I can tell you the theory of stand-up paddleboarding, but having told you that, none of you will be able to say that you're surfers, will you? To be a surfer, to be a stand-up paddleboarder, you need to puzzle it out yourself. You need to get out there in the water and have a go. You need to experience it for yourself. I read this quote this week in the context of why Jesus spoke in parables, and I think it's really important for us. It says, you can't teach by spoon-feeding. You must let people puzzle it out for themselves. It's the same with surfing, isn't it? You can learn all the instructions you want about how to surf. You can read a book. You can watch a YouTube video on it. But until you actually have a go, until you put those things into practice, it's very hard to learn the skill of surfing. And I think this is why Jesus taught in parables. Parables require us to enter into the story. Parables are not boring instructions. 
Rather, they require us to puzzle out the meaning. And you'll only work out that meaning if you apply yourself to the task. Leo Morris said it's there for those who apply themselves. The prophet is there. Parables are there for those who apply ourselves to the task of working out what they mean. Remember Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock. If you want to know him, ask. But here's the reality. Not everyone wants to know him. And so not everyone will puzzle these parables out. Jesus quotes in his answer from Isaiah chapter 6, that's that great commissioning passage of Isaiah where Isaiah sees the holiness of God and he's given the task to go and preach to the people of Israel. There's only one problem with that task though, isn't it? That the people won't listen. Sure, they physically hear the words that Isaiah preaches. The sound waves go into their ear, that kind of, the ear does its magic and the brain gets the electrical signals. But the people just don't listen. They don't want to understand, and subsequently they won't understand. Now, to my shame, I kind of know a little bit about what this is like. At times, I think this is a skill, but as I'm telling you about it now, I'm not so sure that it is something I should take pride in. I have a great ability to not hear my kids at night. I don't know if you've got that ability to not hear things at night. I have a great ability to not hear my kids at night. When I go to sleep, not much will wake me up. On the other hand, Meredith, lying next to me, she seems to be able to tell just when the kids change the way in which they're breathing. So she'll wake me up sometimes. Gus is breathing differently. Maybe he's got a cold. If one of the kids wakes up in the night, even with a scary dream, and starts calling out, I'm very unlikely to wake up. Sure, the sound waves get to my ear, but they're just bouncing around on the inside of my head. Meredith says they're rattling around in empty space. <laughs> you know, so much the case that when the kids were little and Meredith was working at night or away somewhere or another, I used to put a mattress outside their door and just kind of lie in the hallway because I was so scared that I wouldn't wake up at night if they needed me. Why don't I hear the kids at night? I reckon part of it might be because I've trained myself not to hear them at night, that I don't want to hear them, that I don't want to wake up in the night. I like my sleep. So maybe I just don't want to hear that. Israel didn't want to hear Isaiah's message. They trained themselves almost to ignore God. It seems that the same is here in Jesus' day. The people ignore the word of God, even with all the fanfare of miracles, of hospitals being emptied of their sick people, of great proclamations from Jesus about the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, they ignored his word. Here's what I've been wondering over the past few weeks. Are parables then supposed to make the truth of the kingdom's coming plain and simple, or are they supposed to hide that truth? Leon Morris says they do both. Those who want to find out will, but they'll need to puzzle it out. Now, having said that, I also want to take you to verse 11. Have a look at verse 11 in chapter 13 of Matthew. Because behind these words, as Morris puts it, there is the doctrine of election going on. The disciples have looked into these things and they have understood, but it's not of their own merit that they've done that, but because they've been chosen by God. They've been given a gift that others have not. 
They understand that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was bringing in his kingdom, and therefore they want to puzzle out the parable. They're able to hear because God's enabled them to hear. Let me read to you from Morris again. This is the last time I'm going to quote something today, I promise. Morris says, The Word of God is always effective. It brings enlightenment or judgment. Enlightenment to the disciples, judgment to those who reject Jesus. If people rejected Christ and set themselves in opposition to God, how could they understand the teaching that came from God through Christ? So here's what I want you to remember from the parables today. They both conceal and they reveal. And we see that right up the front when Jesus begins to explain the parable in verse 18. He says, listen, or put another way, hear. You who are puzzling it out, listen or hear. Essentially, he's speaking directly to the disciples at the moment and saying, because you've committed yourself to me, here is the meaning of the parable. And as we'll see, it's all about how people respond to Jesus and the message that he brings. The first of the three types of soil are associated with those who, to a lesser or greater extent, hear the word of God but fail to respond to it as they should. For those of us who have been Christians for many years, perhaps you can see in this explanation people who you know, people who you may have grown up with or been to youth group with or been in Sunday school with. Or perhaps as you read these words, you can see kind of stages of your life, times, different times in which you responded to God in different ways. What I want you to see this morning is in verse 23, we see the response that Jesus desires. The seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty or thirty times what was sown. This is the person who hears the word of God and acts on it. They respond, and their response leads to the bearing of fruit. Over the last six weeks, we've taken time to get to know Jesus. At other points in the Bible, he's called the Word. We've taken the time to look carefully at how Matthew presents the Word, how he presents Jesus. We've seen him held up as a great teacher at the end of chapter 7, a teacher with real authority. We've seen him held up as a miraculous healer, We've seen him forgive sins. We've seen him raise the dead. We've seen him open ears and blind eyes. I think we know clearly as a church who Matthew thinks this man is. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. And here's the reality though. Just as in Matthew's day, so in our day today, Not everyone responds to Jesus as they should. Not everyone chooses to follow him as a disciple. Not everyone chooses to follow him and become part of the family of God. Today, I hope you've seen in chapter 13 that response matters. How we respond to God matters. Today, I want you to think about what it means for you to be in good soil that bears fruit. What will that look like in your life? What does it mean to be bearing 30, 60 or 100 times what has been sown? So we finish our time up in Matthew's Gospel, having seen 
God's great King held up for us. I want you to think about today how you will respond to the great King that God sent. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for Matthew who has explained to us so clearly in the middle chapters of his Gospel about what your Son is like. Thank you for the great authority that was invested in him, authority to heal, authority to raise the dead, authority to forgive sins. Father, we thank you that he can be our Lord too, that we can come to him for forgiveness. And Father, today we ask that in your kindness you would help us respond to Jesus as we should, that our lives would bear much fruit. Amen. One question today. Uh, I hope I'm going to be able to do justice to the question. I may not, uh, but I think the question is essentially saying, why do you think Jesus thought it was important for the disciples to understand the meaning of the parable, particularly given the parable has in its context the judgment of unbelieving Israel, and then how are the disciples to apply it and how are we to apply it? Let me try and address that um, with you. Uh, Why does Jesus explain this parable to the disciples? It's a good question. Um, Not all of the parables were explained. I assume that means that if we are to puzzle out the parables, we will be able to understand them more or less on our own, but in this particular parable, Jesus explains it to his disciples. It seems to me that he really wants them to know how they should respond to what Jesus has said about who he is. He doesn't want them to mistake what the parable means. He wants them to understand that this is a choice of life or death, salvation or judgment. He wants them to know that with great great clarity, and so he goes and explains the different ways in which you may respond to the message of Jesus. How do the disciples uh, kind of apply this parable? Well, they go on in their lives, don't they, to be the good soil, to be the ones on which the church is essentially founded. They're the ones who have a great fruitful harvest. The church owes a great debt to their work in writing down what happened and explaining it and seeing the early church grow. How are we to apply it? I think in a similar way, right? We're also to look at what it means to bear fruit in our own lives, having considered that the way in which we respond to Jesus is a matter of judgment or salvation, life or death. We then are to work out what does it look like in our lives to choose salvation, but also to bear fruit in our lives. That'll be different for each of us, what bearing fruit looks like, um, but I'd encourage you to answer that question for yourself. What does it mean for me to bear fruit given the understanding that Jesus has given me and God has given me about the kingdom and about who he is in the kingdom. I hope that answers your question. If it doesn't, if if you want to come and talk to me after, that would be great. Thank you.